and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that what we just heard is true. When you make a promise, you make a covenant, you keep it. And we thank you that you have faithfully been keeping that covenant ever since. So great is your mercy towards us, your children. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that even as this story of Noah uh, sets the stage for what we will be hearing this morning from your word, and it's a challenging word, but it is true. And so we ask, Lord, that you would illuminate your truth to us. Help us to see the full picture of your gospel. Help us to receive it as from you. Pray you would speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last Sunday, we began our series in the book of Romans by looking at Paul's incredible enthusiasm for the gospel, that he was all about the gospel. Everything he did in life was focused on this one task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, that this aim, this mission that God had given him, Paul was going to fulfill, and you see it energize every aspect of his life. But now coming to today's text in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we see Paul suddenly make a sharp left turn from emphasizing the very, very good news to suddenly emphasizing the very, very bad news. In verse 18, Paul turns the corner from just spontaneously describing what the gospel is that he's not ashamed of. And now we read in verse 18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. On one occasion, Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll, the agnostic lecturer of the last century, he was announced to be giving a lecture on hell. And he described and declared that he would be proving conclusively within his lecture that hell was simply a wild dream of some scheming theologians who invented it to terrify people into faith. And so, as he was launching into his subject, a half-drunken man suddenly arose from the audience and shouted out, Make it strong, Bob! There's a lot of us poor fellows depending on you. If you're wrong, we are all lost. Now, that man may have been half-drunk, but he clearly understood what was at stake. If you're wrong about Hal, we're all lost. Make it strong, Bob. And so this man desperately wanted the colonel to be right, that Hal was indeed just a fabrication of man designed to scare people into faith in God. He understood what was at stake, that if the colonel was wrong, then he was lost. You see, on the other hand, If the colonel was right, if Jesus was in fact lying and hell and God's final wrath against sin does not exist, then no one has anything to fear. Then the gospel has no power and no purpose. But if Jesus was telling the truth, well then avoiding God's final wrath against sin becomes the single most important issue of your life and mine. Now the wrath of God is never a popular subject. <laughs> no one really likes to talk about it anymore. Maybe you'll hear about, you know, a bullhorn guy on some street corner somewhere holding up a sign saying, you know, the end is near and people will make fun of him, right? That there's the guy who talks about God's wrath, but we'll just make fun of him. No one else really wants to talk about it. In fact, 
God's wrath is hardly even spoken of in many evangelical churches anymore. The emphasis is placed solely on the good news. God is loving. God is merciful. Heaven. And that's all we'll leave it at. But as God, God and his word make abundantly clear throughout these pages, God didn't just share the good news. He also shared the bad news. In fact, you would argue that there's more bad stories within the Bible than good ones. There's more cautionary tales than shining examples. God never shied away from sharing with us the full picture, which includes the bad news, which includes his wrath upon sin. In fact, if we don't first know the bad news, the good news, I would argue, makes no sense. If we don't know why we need the good news, then what would we even seek after it for if we don't know what it is saving us from? Of this, R.C. Spruill said, Until we understand the prior revelation of the wrath of God, we will never get excited about the revelation of the grace of God. You see, Paul's excitement about the good news was because he knew firsthand and full well the bad news, the wrath of God. Now, wrath is a heavy word. Webster's Dictionary defines wrath like this. Fierce anger... Punishment for sins, retribution. So when we hear this phrase, the wrath of God, I don't want you to diminish the the intensity of it. Don't downplay it in your mind. We're not just talking about God's irritation against sin. We're not just talking about God's annoyance with sin. No, we are talking about God's fierce anger, fierce anger against sin in all of its many forms. So it begs the question, why does God have such a fierce anger against all sin? Why does it bother him so much? Well, the answer is because it goes directly against his divine character, directly against who he is. As 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 tells us, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So God's core character is light. In him there is no darkness, not one speck. So even what we might consider a small sin, just a speck of sin, a white lie as we might call it, that is still completely against the character of God who is pure light. So even a white lie, what we might call it, is still an affront, an insult to his holiness. Of this, John Murray writes, Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God. So when we like to downplay our own sin, we got to remember this applies to us, this applies to me. God is revolted by even the smallest sin in my life. The ones that I might try to downplay, the ones I might even joke about, they insult the purity of God's holiness. And so before we try to let ourselves off the hook, this includes our sins, each one of us, yours and mine. As Paul writes elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, to make sure that the believers he was writing to understood that this applied to them as well as to who they considered the pagans, he writes, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires And thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
So, so often as Christians, we like to let ourselves off the hook, think we're the ones who are exempt from God's wrath and it only applies to everyone else. But no, he says all of us, and like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. You see, a lot of people have the idea that we're all born pure and innocent. But what God's word makes abundantly clear is that no, we are in fact born with sin in our very nature. Each of us as descendants of Adam and Eve have wickedness in our DNA. And consequently, God's wrath is what we deserve. Paul says, like the rest, we were by nature, he's referring to our nature as descendants of Adam and Eve, deserving of wrath. Wrath is what we deserve, God's fierce anger. And that, my friends, is very, very bad news indeed. But now let's return again to Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, when we hear about God's wrath, inevitably our minds will go ahead to the final wrath, the final judgment, and the lake of fire. That place of eternal judgment that God created for Satan and his demons, commonly referred to as hell. And though we shouldn't entirely remove that implication from this statement, because of course, we know the wages of sin is death, death being physical death, death being eternal death. So we don't want to completely remove hell from what Paul is saying here. However, hell is not Paul's primary focus in this passage when he is referring to God's wrath being revealed. Because take note that Paul doesn't say in this verse that the wrath of God will be revealed. Rather, he says the wrath of God is being revealed. Present tense. So clearly, Paul is talking about something much more immediate, something that could be observed by the Christians in Rome at that time in history. Because he wasn't just pointing ahead to when God's wrath would come in the final judgment. He's saying God's wrath is being revealed. You can look around and you can see it happening right now. That's what Paul is saying to the Romans. So it begs the question, what form of God's wrath was Paul talking about? What form of God's wrath did he say is being revealed? And I'm going to let you ponder that question for a little while, and we're going to come back to it. And so to get to that answer, which we'll come back to in a a few moments, we must first follow Paul's line of reasoning in verses 18 through 23, in which he explains a repeated pattern of mankind's rebellion against God which inevitably leads to his wrath being revealed. And so here is the pattern that Paul lays out for us in verses 18 through 23. Number one, the first step of the pattern is this. It begins with a willful suppression and rejection of the truth. So it begins with a willful suppression and finally a rejection of the truth. Let's read 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. 
So here we see once more, sin always begins with a willful suppression of the truth, which ultimately leads to a rejection of the truth. We go back to the beginning. Eve knew the clear truth that disobeying God by eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was forbidden, God had clearly revealed to her and Adam, this will lead to death. Don't eat it. But the crafty serpent comes along, and first he suppresses the truth by casting doubt upon what God had clearly said. And then once Eve latched onto that doubt, the truth that had been crystal clear in her mind only minutes earlier was now sufficiently suppressed to the point that she finally outright rejected it. She defied what God had clearly made known to them. She ate the fruit. Then Adam ate the fruit, and so they were without excuse. Of course, they still tried to make excuses, didn't they? Adam, what have you done? Well, the woman that you gave to me, well, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So he double-blamed God for giving him Eve, and then he blames Eve for giving him the fruit, right? Adam's not taking responsibility. Excuses. Eve, what have you done? Well, the serpent, he tricked me, and I ate. Again, excuses. But were any of these excuses standing up with God? Of course not. They were without excuse because God had made his truth to both of them abundantly clear. They suppressed it. They rejected it. And so now without excuse, Adam and Eve justly received God's wrath for their sin and they suffered the consequences. This pattern has played out again and again throughout world history. And it has stayed predictably consistent from Adam and Eve through Cain and Abel, the evil generation of Noah, the video that we saw here earlier. We see it played out in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it played out again and again in ancient Israel. We see it play out as well in other pagan nations like ancient Babylon. We see it play out in ancient Rome to whom Paul is writing this letter saying, you are at the final stage of this pattern and Rome is about to fall, and, and fall it did. We see it repeat itself once more in medieval Europe, and today we see the same pattern being repeated in our own time, in our own nation. We see the plain truth of God being willfully suppressed. Did God really say that? Is God even real? How do we know that what this book says is true? It's suppressed. Then finally it's rejected. We don't need that book anymore. That carries over into almost every, every sphere of life. We see it happen socially, politically, culturally. Every sphere of life, we see the truth being suppressed and rejected. And so make no mistake, we too are without excuse before God. But inevitably, the question gets asked. Well, what about those who have never heard the truth of God? What about those who have never once had the gospel preached to them? What about someone, you know, in the isolated Amazonian rainforest, a tribe that's never had a missionary come and share the gospel with them. Well, let's read verse 20 once more. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Now, this is what's known as God's general revelation of himself. God's general revelation. Just as we can learn much of a writer by studying his books or his writings, just as we can learn much about a painter 
from his paintings, by studying his art. So, too, we can learn about God from the handiwork of what he has made in his creation. It is the general revelation of himself to all mankind, even those in the Amazon rainforest. He has revealed himself through his creation, and Paul says, so that men are without excuse. As the psalmist put it long ago, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. It's just like what Vern was saying earlier. If we look for God, he is speaking to us through his creation. He is revealing himself. So in this general sense, everyone who rejects the self-evident truth of a creator God is without excuse. Even the remote Amazonian tribesman is without excuse before God. And of course, arguments go further about, about accountability to what you know. And that's a sermon for another day. But on this basic level of seeking the creator God, his word says men are without excuse. Because even those who have maybe never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are those who can still seek the true creator. And it's incredible when you hear stories of ways that he has yet to reveal himself or has revealed himself to those who truly seek him, even without missionaries being sent to them. However, we know that this does not in any way, shape, or form take us off the hook of bringing the gospel, because how beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. And to those who truly seek him, God says he will be found by them. But now saying across the board mankind is without excuse before God. This applies to all of us. What happens now after the truth gets suppressed and finally rejected? What is the next step in this cycle? Well, the next step, Paul says, is their thinking becomes futile. Thinking they are wise, they become fools. So thinking becomes futile. Step two. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. There's a story of a young man who returned from his first semester at university. And he visited his elderly Sunday school teacher who had invited him over for supper. Well, he hadn't been at university very long, but he'd been there just long enough for the atheistic professors there to all but destroy his faith. So as she fixed a meal, inevitably she brought up the subject of God and faith, and he self-assuredly said to her, Ha, I once believed in God, but since studying science, I'm convinced that God is but an empty word invented for weak-minded people. Well, her eyes got a little bit wider, and she paused for a moment to register all of that. Finally, she held up an egg that she was about to use, and she asked him, Well, I have not studied science at university, but since you have, maybe you can tell me, where did this egg come from? <laughs> Why, from a hen, of course, he replied. And where did the hen come from, she asked. Why, it hatched from an egg. And perhaps, said the lady, you can tell me, which one existed first, the chicken or the egg? Oh, he thought for a moment, uh, the hen. The hen came first. So you mean to tell me that a hen existed without having to first come from an egg? Oh, no, said the young man. I, I guess I should have said the egg was first. 
And you mean to tell me that an egg existed without having to come from a hen first? Well, by now, the young man was almost cross-eyed, thinking this all over, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You're, you're getting me confused. Well, she then smiled at him and replied, Young man, if you cannot even explain to me the existence of an egg without God, can you really expect me to believe that you can explain the existence of the whole world without God? And so we see today, our world is filled with educated fools. Educated fools. There are all sorts of seemingly very smart people with degrees and titles and letters behind their names. But they reject God's truth and even deny his existence entirely. And so God's word calls them fools. God's word says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And of them, Paul writes, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. So first in the cycle, we see God's truth suppressed and rejected. Second, we see thinking becomes futile and foolish. And now third in the cycle, we see God is inevitably replaced by idols. God is replaced Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, in the human heart, there is not a vacuum when it comes to belief and worship. If we remove God, we don't just go to neutral. We will inevitably move our worship and faith to something else. And we see for many people that that Belief in God, we just replace it with a big word, science. Our faith, our belief, our worship becomes science. Or, or it becomes something else. Uh, pleasure. Uh, you know, the lusts of the flesh. Power. All of these things. Wealth. Prosperity. We, we are created as beings of worship. And if we remove God from our worship, we will replace him with something lesser. John Murray writes... The, man, the mind of man is never a religious vacuum. If there is the absence of the true, there is always the presence of the false. And so, inevitably, whatever form it takes, idolatry will rear its head. As in Paul's time, when the worship of man-made idols was commonplace, the Romans had hundreds, if not thousands, of different deities. There are many places in our world today where men and women still do that, where they replace God with some kind of image or statue. Many other religions, such as Hinduism, for instance, has literally thousands upon thousands of gods to choose from for your worship. I remember uh, uh, a story Brother Reuben shared with me of his time there, where uh, someone had, had said, well, you know, this guy up here in the corner in a, in a room full of, I think, many of them, he had said, I usually pray to this one. I've had the most luck with him. Right? So just sort of, it's a pick'em smorgasbord of which God would you like to pray to? Because if this one doesn't work, I'll try a different one. And so this still happens in our world today. Of course, here in the West, in our, you know, enlightened scientific culture, we don't typically do that anymore. And so we're off the hook from idolatry, right? We don't bow down to blocks of marble or some stone idol. And so this doesn't apply. Well, not exactly. As I was already saying, the definition of an idol is anything that takes the place of God. 
Anything that takes his rightful place, anything that we prioritize before him, is an idol. John Calvin described the human condition as an idol-making factory. We are idol-making factories. So instead of worshiping God, we worship things like money and sex and security and romance and family and sports and food and recreation and entertainment and technology and success and career and youth and physical beauty and and physical talents and giftedness. We worship all of these things. We have shows called American Idol. We literally put people who can sing well on a pedestal and call them idols and many other spin-off shows just like it. And so even though we don't have physical idols, all of these things can become our idols as they occupy our hearts and dominate our schedules and influence our finances. And such things can easily become the objects of our devotion and, yes, even our worship. And so this is the third step of the cycle. God is replaced with whatever. Fill in the blank. And now the final step of the cycle. Depravity becomes normalized, approved, and celebrated. Depravity becomes normalized, approved, and celebrated. Paul continues, verse 24, describing how the final conclusion of this happens. An extensive list of every kind of wickedness imaginable, and then he wraps it all up in verse 32 like this, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but approve of those who practice them. And so here within this list, Paul emphasizes the deliberate nature of all of this. People cannot simply say, I didn't know what I was doing. They can't say, I didn't know any better. It is deliberate defiance against God. And of course, in this section, we see all of, this, all of the things that are listed. We see the sin of homosexuality. We see it first emphasized with women. We see it then emphasized between men. And then it goes on and on, and he, and he actually lists a very extensive thing in, uh, in the conclusion of this passage. And so now to recap the cycle, first we see God's truth suppressed and rejected. Second, we see mankind's thinking become foolish. Third, God is replaced. And finally, depravity becomes normalized, approved, and celebrated. And so now we return to our earlier question. What form of God's wrath was Paul talking about that was already being revealed? Well, it comes in the three actions that we see God perform in this passage. In verse 24, we read, Therefore God gave them over in the sexual desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. So I want to underline that phrase for you. God gave them over. It's repeated three times. And so that wrath of God that Paul spoke of, that is being revealed, that could be seen by the Romans in their their culture and their world around them, what Paul is talking about is when God removes his mercifully limiting restraints and gives people over to a depraved mind, to fully indulge themselves in sin and wickedness, no matter how vile. And I think 
I don't have to go into great detail for you to understand what we're talking about here. I can remember 15, 20 years ago thinking, wow, this is probably as bad as it could get. I don't think things could get any worse. I remember thinking that 15 or 20 years ago. Do some of you remember thinking that 15 or 20 years ago? Look at our world today. Has it gotten worse? Yeah. And is it continuing to get worse? Yeah. That's because there is no end to depravity. When minds have been given over by God, all restraint has been removed, there is no bottom. Just as there is, there is no end to the, to the good side of God's character, light and holiness, we can continue and will continue in it, hallelujah, forever. There is no end to God's light. But so too at the, in the bottom realm, in the darkness, there is no end to the darkness. If you dive in, there is no rock bottom. You will sink deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into depravity, no matter how vile. Of this, R.C. Sproul writes, Three times in this section, we read about human beings being given up or given over by God. They are given up to their vile passions, the lust of the flesh, and to reprobate minds. When God judges people according to the standard of his righteousness, he is declaring that he will not strive with mankind forever. The worst thing that can happen to sinners is to be allowed to go on sinning without any divine restraints. At the end of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, when the description of the last judgment is set forth, God says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. God gives people over to what they want. He abandons them to their sinful impulses and removes his restraints, saying in essence, if you want to sin, go ahead and sin. This is what theologians call judicial abandonment. God, in dispensing his judgment, abandons the impenitent sinner forever. Now, over a decade ago, American pastor John MacArthur gave a sermon entitled, A Nation Abandoned by God. And in the sermon, he mentioned the story of the decline of Samson. And then he went on to say this, I can't imagine anything worse than being abandoned by God. To the sons of Israel earlier in the book of Judges in chapter 10, God said this, You have forsaken me, you have served other gods, therefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. This was God saying to Israel, I'm done with you. This is the wrath of being given over. The wrath of abandonment. You want to sin? Fill your boots. There it is. I'm not stopping you. I'm not restraining you anymore. The wrath of abandonment is a form of God's wrath in which he lets go of an individual or society and lets it catapult full speed without restraint in the direction of its own sinful desires and devices and choices. That's the wrath Paul is describing in this passage. This is the cyclical reality of this wrath that has defined human history from Adam and Eve and will always until Jesus returns. And so you see, when a, when a nation rejects God, though God is merciful and slow to anger, as in the days of Noah, there comes a point where he says, enough, I will not strive with man forever. There will come a point where God 
finally says, you don't want me, I will return the favor and I will reject all those who are rejecting me. And it pains me to say that today, today, in 2020, I believe that here in Canada, along with much of the West, the United States, as nations, we are in the fourth stage of the cycle. We are in this fourth phase that Paul described. Because already for many years, many, many years, decades, we have seen God's truth being suppressed and rejected. We've seen our culture's thinking becoming increasingly foolish and hostile towards God. We see God being replaced by idols of many types and stripes. And finally, as I said earlier, in just the past 15, 20 years, we have seen sexual depravity become normalized, approved of, and finally celebrated. In these past couple of weeks, we've even seen pedophilia being pushed in attempts to normalize it. We hear the backlash against what Netflix has released with this movie, Cuties. Again, it's, it's just depravity continuing its inevitable downward plunge. And in Canada today, the fact is, woe to the politician who would publicly state that marriage is between one man and one woman. Woe to the one who would refuse to march in a gay pride parade. Woe to the one who is against the murder of unborn children. They are loudly told those beliefs are, are outdated, they're bigoted, they're homophobic, they're sexist, and they are most definitely no longer electable or acceptable in our society. In our national anthem, yet we still sing a prayer every time we sing it. God, keep our land glorious and free. It's a prayer in our national anthem. It's not there by mistake. It's there by design. The dominion of Canada under God, we seek him. We, have, we, we sought him at our establishment and we continue to seek him. Yet we see into this fourth phase of the cycle the rejection and the replacement of him continuing. And so I wonder, how long we'll continue to keep our land glorious and free if we continue to willfully reject and replace him? I wonder. And so the question is, how do we as believers respond? How do we respond? How do we live out the, the life of Christ in a time like this, as the Romans were, in the fourth phase of a cycle of a culture that is just hell-bent on its own destruction? What do we do? How do we live? How do we respond? Well, the first thing is this. We intercede. We intercede in prayer. A couple quick examples. Think of Moses out in the wilderness leading that rebellious nation of Israel. God says, enough, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out. Stand aside. But Moses intercedes. He stands in the gap. He says, oh, Lord, yes, they deserve it. They're a stiff-necked people. But be merciful because you are merciful. Think of your name. And God listens to Moses and he relents. Moses interceded on behalf of a rebellious nation. We see another example of Abraham interceding for Sodom on behalf of Lot. Sodom, we know the stories. They've become wicked, depraved, vile, in, in the worst ways possible. God says, Abraham, I'm going to destroy it. And, and he pleads with God to, to save the city. And he, he starts this bartering exchange of how many righteous people would it take for you to relent? He gets them all the way down to ten. For the sake of ten, I will relent, God says. He didn't find ten. He only found one, Lot. 
And he says, okay, Lot, I'm going to get you out of there. He sends angels, Lot comes out, but we see the terrible consequences. Sodom and Gomorrah wiped out in fire and brimstone. Lot's own wife, her heart's still in it. She looks back, she's overtaken, becomes a pillar of salt, and we see the corruption later on in his own daughters. And yet we see Abraham being successful in pleading with God, interceding for the sake of the righteous. And so too, we must intercede. We must get on our knees before God and beg him, Lord, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of mercy, please show mercy. And, and we, we have to do this because God listens to the prayers of his children. And so we can intercede just as many others have done before. We need to be doing this. Secondly, we need to guard ourselves and our children from being corrupted by what is happening around us. As I just said, Lot living in Sodom, though he was deemed righteous, clearly his daughters and wife had been corrupted by the vile nature of the world in which they were living. And so we must remember, in this world, we are to be in this world, but not of this world. And so we need to make sure that we are not being dragged along with the suppression and rejection of the truth and replacement of God. We need to guard our own hearts and guard our children. Thirdly, we need to not be ashamed to declare the full gospel to this world around us. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so Noah, we look at him. As he's building the ark, the Bible called him a preacher of righteousness. So as everyone came to look at the spectacle, to laugh, to say, Noah, you're crazy, he preached to them, repent. And though only he and his family were saved, he was a witness to that generation. And so too, we must stand as a witness to this generation, to not be ashamed to continue to declare the full gospel. Think of Jonah. Even Jonah, who preached to the Ninevites with a hard heart, it still resulted in Nineveh repenting and turning back to God, and so that generation was spared God's wrath. That is the power of the gospel, and we can't write off our culture just because we deserve it. God and the power of the gospel are still real. He desires to show mercy just as he desired to show mercy to Nineveh. And so we must keep speaking the gospel. And finally, in speaking this gospel, we must always emphasize that though we deserve God's wrath because of his great love, we can yet receive his mercy and grace if we but repent and turn to him in faith. Preacher Chuck Swindoll shared about his last spanking that he received when he was a boy. Does anyone here remember their last spanking? <laughs> well, he was 13 years old. It's that age. And Chuck says, Having just broken into the sophisticated ranks of the teenage world, I thought I was something on a stick. My father wasn't nearly as impressed with me as I was, with my great importance and newfound independence. I was lying on my bed. He was outside the window on a muggy October afternoon in Houston, Texas, weeding the garden. He said, Charles, come out and help me weed the garden. I said something like, no, it's my birthday, remember? Well, my tone was sassy and my deliberate lack of respect was eloquent. I knew better than to disobey my dad, but after all, I was the ripe old age of 13. Well, dad set a new 100-meter record that autumn afternoon, 
He was in the house in a flash and all over me like white on rice, spanking me all the way out to the garden. As I recall, I weeded until the moonlight was shining on the pansies. But that same night, he also took me out to a surprise dinner. He gave me what I deserved earlier. But later, he gave me what I did not deserve. The birthday dinner was a matter of grace. He showered his favor on a rebellious young man, and boy, did I enjoy that grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? In Ephesians 2, 3 to 5, Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. Amen. Lord God, we enjoy your grace. Boy, do we enjoy your grace. Thank you that you have poured it out on us richly and freely through Christ, through his death and resurrection, and that all of us who come to you through faith in what you have done receive this free pardon. Though like a rebellious teenager, we deserve wrath. Thank you for your mercy. And now, Lord, we intercede on behalf of our nation. We recognize, Lord, that we have gone so far from you. And as we go deeper into this cycle of being given over, oh, Lord, we pray, show mercy. Would you work in our nation? Would you work in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, in the hearts of our leaders? We pray, oh, Lord, would you work and show mercy yet, even in a time where we deserve judgment. And so, God, we pray, even as... Nineveh was on the cusp of destruction. They repented and turned to you. We pray that our nation might yet repent and turn to you. For this we pray. Give us strength and wisdom in these times to live out this mission and to preach this gospel that you have given us, to not be ashamed. For it is the power of God unto our salvation. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.